Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode, you'll hear Caitlin Gill. And he wrapped his belt around my neck and he tightened it, and I like that. It turns out I focus a little bit better when I can't breathe. <laughs> that and more, but before that, let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I'll bet you could stand just a little bit more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you're going to get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on the entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com, select any one item. Could be an adventurous new toy, a sexy piece of laundry, anything you desire. Just enter the offer code RISK at the checkout. You'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item, get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter the offer code RISK. That's RISK at adamandeve.com. Also, you know that feeling you get when you get things done with just a click of the mouse? Can't get more convenient. And now you can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk. Thanks to Stamps.com. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office. It never closes. Talk about convenient. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand your mail to the mailman. And you'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. And right now, you can use our promo code, R-I-S-K, for this special offer. It's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer that includes the digital scale and up to $55 free postage. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Joshua Redman behind me now. We're calling today's episode Live with Body Storytelling. Body Storytelling is a show that has existed longer than Risk has existed in the San Francisco area. Dixie De La Tour is the mama of that remarkable show. We've been friends for years. Body is all about getting honest about sex, uh, vanilla sex, kinky sex, any kind. So you can well imagine why I'm friends with so many people that have done that show. And we're going to leave this recording of this performance pretty much intact so you can hear what a Risk Live show is really like. 
And that's why I want folks that are in Pittsburgh to be paying attention because we are coming to your town on October 17th with workshops the next day through Steel City Improv on the 18th of October. Atlanta, we're coming to your town on November 6th with workshops the next day that you can find at villagecomedy.com. The pitch deadline. Pitch us your stories, Atlanta. Get them in by October 15th at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Albuquerque will be there on the 13th. The pitch deadline is the 15th of October. Minneapolis, we will be in your town on the 4th of December. The pitch deadline is November 1st. Seattle, we're coming to you on the 12th of December. Get your pitches in by the 15th of November. That's at risk-show.com slash submissions. And all of our live shows are listed at risk-show.com slash tour. But let's get to this amazing night of stories that were shared in San Francisco just a couple weeks back. Here it is now. It's Risk Live with Body Storytelling. Dirty storytelling tonight here in San Francisco in honor of Folsom Weekend. And I am not even staying here for Folsom. I'm I'm leaving tomorrow morning. My producer is a sadist, and uh, she has me going to Virginia tomorrow to marry a straight couple. So he's here for one night only. If you're looking for action, remember, Body Got Me Laid. We'd love to have Kevin Allison be able to walk away with that story. I'm at the Baldwin Hotel. Come and poop on me. (laughs) We were just discussing neither of us has ever co-hosted a show before. So we're going to probably talk over each other a little bit tonight. We're, We're on a learning curve. Please bear with us. So as you know, we really like to get the energy up in the room because it's really hard standing up here and talking about intensely personal things without the crowd feeling like they're supporting you, like you guys are here to hear some awesome, dirty stories. Can I ask you to get the energy up in the room? Are you excited about our first storyteller? show, Hardest Spot, and we are starting off on a super powerful note, the amazing Kevin Allison. Thank you. I need to bring her everywhere. All right, I'm naked. Not right now. At the beginning of the story, I am. 
I'm naked, and I am bowing on the floor with my hands in front of me, as if I'm bowing before an emperor. It's pitch black in front of me because there is this black tape stretched around my eyes so tightly that I can feel this twinging pain in my eyeballs because they're being pressed back in my sockets. And it's so quiet. I, I, I can feel the coldness of the hard floor under me. And I'm a little bit worried because I've duct taped the lock to my apartment door open. And I've duct taped the lock to my apartment building open. So that someone I've never met face to face can come in. Uh, little caveat here. Don't do that. But I did. I'm there, I'm waiting, and I start to think to myself, wait a minute, I didn't hear the door open, but is he already in the room? Is that his breath right next to my ear? How did I get here? Well... On my show, Risk, we encourage people to take a risk and then come back and tell people about it. Tell things that you normally wouldn't talk about in front of an audience, in public. But at a certain point, the fans of the show started daring me to take risks. So there was one time we did a show and a guy was telling a story about a time he attended an erotic biting workshop. I came up to him afterwards and I said, Jeff, where do you attend an erotic biting workshop? And he said, oh, Kevin, I'm going to this kink camp. In about three weeks, you should come. And I said, oh, I know. There's a lot of crazy gay sex in my stories. But I really don't know anything about bondage and discipline and sadomasochism and all that stuff. I don't know. And he said, Kevin, take a risk. So it was as if my podcast had finally just walked right up to me and dared me. So I did. I, I, I got on the phone the next day and called up Dark Odyssey and arranged to go. And then when I hung up the phone, I thought, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I should call the camp director and ask, what's the demographics at this camp, for example? So I did. And he said, uh, Oh, hi. Yeah, I think you're going to have a great experience. I said, but how many gay men come to the camp? This was several years ago. And he said, oh, almost none. <laughs> so I was like, oh, my God, I really am taking a risk here. Well, I went, and that weekend, I loved it. It was finally like this eureka moment. It was as if I had found a family, and I was home. So... It was just beautiful. And I finally started to understand at least the general concept of dominance and submission. But after a few weeks and a few months had passed after camp, I realized, oh, I didn't really carry it out into my life. I didn't start really doing this stuff with other guys. My life is no kinkier than it was before. Well, here's the thing. My friend Jeff, right before I went to camp, had come over to my house and helped me set up a profile on FetLife. Which, if you don't know, it's like Facebook for kinksters. And he said, well, what do you want to be, a dom or a sub? And I said, huh? I said, let's just go with dom. That sounds cute. 
So here I am, about two months after camp, nothing kinky has happened in my life. I'm laying my head down on my pillow one night and my phone lights up right in front of my face. And it says, it's a message from FetLife. It says, you have a message from Little China Boy. Well, I was awake then. I logged on to FetLife and he said, hey, I'm 25 years old, you like Asian guys, I like mature guys. <laughs> Let's start talking. Well, we did, his name was Zach, and he was an incredible young man. Uh, he was studying music, but he was super, super intelligent about all these kink things that I was still just learning. You know, he was raised on the internet, in other words. <laughs> And what we started to do was to establish this little relationship where I was going to be the daddy and he was going to be the dirty little boy, right? But the thing of it was, he kept having to push me and teach me. So he would say things like, um, should I crawl to you on my hands and knees with my tongue sticking out, daddy? And I'd say, yes. <laughs> you do that. Because you don't quite want to say, uh, actually, young man, I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> but we kept texting back and forth, and eventually it went to phone calls. And what was really interesting is that he started seriously mentoring me. He would ask me what my fantasies are. One time he said to me, imagine this, if you will. You are a teacher teaching English in my former high school in Hong Kong. And you bring all the seniors into your classroom and make us all take down our pants. I'm like, yes. <laughs> I was red in the face the rest of the day. I just got so much jazz out of this young man. It was so fascinating going back and forth. But there came a day that things changed a little bit because he had these midterms at school and he was just exhausted and exhausted and he couldn't really talk to me much and all that sort of thing. And I knew he was going to be done at a certain Saturday. So at four o'clock on this Saturday afternoon, I called and I said, hey, are you exhausted? Were midterms okay? And he said, get on your knees. That'd make me feel better. And all of a sudden, I found myself getting hard. The energy had changed. He was turning the tables. He was finally doing the domination thing to me. I, I, I said, uh, Whoa, this is so strange. Do you mind if I, if, if I start masturbating while you're talking to me? And he said, yeah, yeah. And we went on talking dirty like this for a while. And finally, I, I, I said, God damn, this is so amazing. And he said, yeah, but isn't it humiliating that I'm spitting in your face and making you lick my ass? And I said, no, no, it's amazing. I want to lick the ground you walk on. And he said, yeah, you're right. You should bow on the floor when I enter a room because right now China is making all of America lick its cock. So I was just overwhelmed. And, and I, I said, uh, uh, sir, what can I do for you? I, I, I want to take this further. And he said, then you're ready.
He said, you'll get instructions from me on Friday afternoon. So keep Friday afternoon into the evening free. Friday afternoon, I get this text and it says, strap up the doors with the duct tape so that I can get in the room, blindfold yourself, take off all of your clothes and bow on the floor and wait and see what happens. Now, the very last thing he texted me before he got on the subway was, oh, and by the way, the photographs I've been sending you are actually of me. While I'm there, with the blindfold on, staring into darkness, wondering if I'm hallucinating and hearing things, I start to think, why was that the last thing he said? Might the pictures he's been sending me this whole time not be him? Well, I didn't have much time to think because eventually he did walk in the room. And I thought, oh, oh, okay, everything's all right. Everything's all right. You see, a couple of weeks earlier, I had also started flirting with another young man on Grindr. But this was a slightly older guy, a black guy, very well educated. He had like a master's or a PhD in literature. And we were talking about classic foreign cinema back and forth on Grindr for a while. And after a while, I realized, oh my gosh, I'm so much more interested in this Chinese guy and everything. So I let him know, you know, ah, this isn't quite working for me, actually. So I'm, you know, uh, I'm going to have to pass something like that. And the last thing he texted to me was, oh, you're not getting rid of me that easily. So all of a sudden, these ideas start to go through my head. Might the person entering this room, the footsteps I'm hearing, might they be Kyle and not my little China boy, Zach? Well, I got rid of that idea immediately just to get into the mode of getting into things with him. And what he did was he tied my arms behind my back and got me down. And he said, listen, I got to prepare some stuff. I'm going to shove your face in my shoes. Just smell that for a while. And I did, and it was amazing. It was, I, I had never done anything like that before. I was like, oh my God, I feel like a baby with its blankie. So he starts preparing some stuff and he puts a much more intense mask on my face than the whatever I already had strapped around me. And he has me start to do things to him and he has me calling him master and he's calling me slave and we hadn't really negotiated that, but it kind of felt right. <sighs> and then what happened was that he had me start taking his underwear off with my teeth, right? Pulling it down with my teeth and I finally feel his cock hit me in the eye. And it's at that point that I feel like, wait a minute, this is not the cock of someone who's about 5'3". This cock is huge. And come to think of it, I have this sense, he kept forcing me not to touch him up there. That's why I had to tie me up. But when I had been reaching up there, I felt like this is a bigger framed man than Zach. And now I started to feel like the smell, the smell was much more big, burly alpha male. And suddenly I knew that this was Kyle standing in front of me.
and my hands were tied behind my back. I went numb. I went into a zone of just terror and not knowing what to do. And he kind of sensed that something was off with me. He said, all right, listen, I'm going to let a sliver of your mask off so you can see something. And I said, yes, master. But my heart wasn't really in the words this time. But when he let that little sliver off, my eyes start darting around. I'm like trying to gain a perspective of something, the lights, the whatever in the room. And finally I land on this beautiful pair of Asian eyes. And he's smiling down at me and he says, you look so fucking hot right now. It was all in my head. His sheer dominance had just impressed me that this cock was enormous. And he was, you know, six feet tall. He was Jeremiah Jones. Well, at that point, he wanted to skull fuck me, and I just went at it with relish. Now, he had been feeding me all sorts of water all through the session as well. So what happened was I had never experienced that thing where someone shoves their cock down your throat and you start to gag. You start to, you know, be on the verge of vomiting. To be honest, it's not, for me, I would say, a pleasant sensation. But... I found myself loving it because every time I gagged and had to kind of pull back, he would go, yeah, and I could feel his cock just jolt in my mouth. So I just wanted to keep giving and giving and giving and giving him. Now, at a certain point, I got a little lost in my head and I started to think about something. I started to think, oh my gosh, I'm starting to have a little bit of an understanding about not just power, but about my thing about Asian guys. Because here's the thing. When I was about seven years old, uh, this is a strange part of the story. It's totally random, but Sarah Jessica Parker (laughs) took me to see (laughs) The King and I. I always cut the Sarah Jessica Parker part out, but she was the best friend of the girl next door, and they had tickets to The King and I, and it was the one and only time I spent any amount of time with Sarah Jessica Parker. The night I developed my fetish. So on stage are all these people who look totally different than anyone else in Cincinnati, Ohio. They had this beautiful amber skin and these fierce, exotic eyes and this raven black hair so different from mine. And the king, the king was always half naked. And when someone would do something wrong, you would whip them. And I was amazed. And then in high school, I saw the last emperor, right? The last emperor, Puyi, when he was three years old, he was the emperor of China. And then when he was a grown man, you know, the communist revolution happened and he was just a lowly gardener at that point. And at the point in the movie where he's being re-educated in a communist prison camp, he happens to be in a cell with his old servant. And at one point he looks to his servant as he's getting out of bed helplessly because he's never learned how to tie his own shoes. And that destroyed me 
to see someone who had been so magnificent, so reduced. And you know what? I knew how that felt. Because I knew I was gay from the first moment that I was conscious, right? I knew what the words fag and gay meant when I was a fucking toddler. I was five years old when I found myself obsessing how am I going to handle kindergarten? What if they find out about me? I was terrified. And I knew that I was special, that I had surprises in me, that I had interesting different things to share. But I knew that what I was was ultimately going to be considered by a lot of the outside world weird and different and just too foreign, right? And sometimes I'll be on the subway in New York City and I'll see a young Asian man sitting across the, the way from me and I'll think, you're so beautiful, but you don't know it because this whole society tells you you're weird, you're different, you're weak. You don't have the sexual prowess that we like here. And I want to go to him and bow down before him and say, no, I know that inside you is a king. Someone so magnificent, he should never have to learn how to tie his shoes. And at that moment, the final thrust went into the back of my throat <laughs> and I vomited water all over the floor. And I said, sorry, master. And this time, I meant it. Thank you very much. love about dirty storytelling is you learn lots of new things and I expected I was going to learn a few things but I never knew that Sarah Jessica Parker was responsible for Kevin Allison's Asian fetish did you <laughs> give it up for Kevin Allison that was a fantastic story As you sit in the audience, I want you to think about what it feels like to be up here on stage and why people would do that. Why do you get up on stage and share your stories? We are constantly going, I have no fucking idea. That's a good fucking question. I don't know why I love it the way I do, but I do. And our next storyteller, I'm going to tell you for her, is very nervous. And this is real shit. So I want you in just a moment, to welcome her. She has been on the Risk podcast, and she has told a story for them live in San Diego. She has been a rock star here at Body Storytelling. They love her stories. I see that she's about to tell in Portland soon, so she is driven to share her true stories with you. Please appreciate that and make her feel welcome, Leslie Jones. <laughs>
am a submissive. I like being handcuffed to the bed frame while I get fucked. It helps when there are objects like a ball gag in my mouth, a butt plug shoved deep in my asshole, collar on my neck, and clamps on my nipples. I like getting degraded. I love it when my partner's balls are in my mouth and he's calling me a dirty, filthy, useless little cunt hole. Nothing but a receptacle for his cum. As I've just explained, it's very important for me that my romantic partner be the one in charge. Which is why when I was 18 years old, I started dating my boss. Surprisingly, this turned out well. He was kinkier than I was, and the best kind of kinky at that. An ex-Mormon. Yep. They're very creative. He was sexy as fuck. He had a full red beard, these piercing green eyes, and a voice that could just send chills down my spine. He was an imposing figure, one that I knew could overpower me easily. Other people saw him as kind and caring and considerate, and he was all these things, but I knew his best quality. He was eager to put a leash on me and make me crawl around the room naked. And he did. In fact, we're still together, eight years later. Being with Nick has allowed me to explore a submissive side of myself more deeply than I ever thought possible. Sure, sometimes he'll wrap me up in saran wrap and roll me around the living room like a package. (laughs) Often on the weekends, he'll turn my ass as closely to the color of an eggplant as he can get it. But beyond that, he also tells me if I'm allowed to have ice cream after dinner. Sometimes he orders for me in restaurants. He always tells me when my bedtime is. He lets me know when I'm watching too much TV. And he tells me how many orgasms I can have per month. This month, it was only two. Um, (laughs) A little bit too much information there. But yeah, um, some people do yoga to relax, but when I've had a hard day at work, I'll come home and get put in my cage for a couple hours. Nothing is a better reset for me. And yeah, some people might say the kind of 24-7 relationship that Nick and I have is depraved, disgusting, or even abusive, but all I know is it makes me feel loved and happy and safe, and I'm really into it. So... Everything was going great for the first five years of our relationship. Nick was the perfect dom. Until one day, when we were eating spaghetti and meatballs and watching the Colbert Report, he turned to me and said, Hey, Leslie, what would you think about maybe you being in charge once in a while? It literally felt, and I am using the word literally correctly here, it felt like the world has stopped spinning. I thought I was going to throw up, I'd never expected something like that to come out of his mouth. How could he ask me to challenge something that was the entire foundation of our relationship? How could I have him kneel at my feet one night, then wake up the next morning and put on my collar like nothing had happened? (laughs) This was not okay, but I wanted to be a supportive partner, and beyond that, I'm wired to want to please him. I'm a submissive, so I forced a smile on my face, and I said... Sure, sweetie, we can try that sometime. So the next night, we did. He took off 
all his clothes and was like, what do I do now? I said, uh, I guess lay on the bed. And I felt really self-conscious. I didn't realize doms had to be so creative. <laughs> but I, I made him put on a, a, a blindfold. I, I was enterprising and had him use one of his ties to cover his eyes. And uh, I said, okay, lay there. And I was like, what do I do next? I literally said that. And he said, well, you could gag me. So I did, but as I was shoving it in his mouth, I was so upset and torn. I was like, you should be the one talking, not me. Who's going to tell me what to do now? But I did it. And then I was like, okay, in my head, I was like, okay, I can't hit him. That just seems really disrespectful. I can't verbally degrade him. That's even worse. What's left? And I thought back to the only episode of femdom porn I had ever seen and I thought, I know I'll try some cock and ball torture in the porn it seemed pretty straightforward the dominatrix (laughs) the dominatrix simply, simply tied up the submissive's balls. What I didn't know at the time was this is actually an advanced, um, <laughs> a very advanced technique. So I found some rope and I was like, you know, I can knit, I can crochet, I can even macrame. This will be easy. But as I attempted to tie them up, it felt less like a crafter noon and a lot more like trying to shove a cat into a tiny cat-sized t-shirt. <laughs> I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, but eventually, after 20 very awkward minutes, I finally got them into a neat little package. If it was a tamale, my mom would have been proud. Um, So so I was like, what now? Uh, So I did some other things, and about half an hour later, I thought, oh, maybe I should check on those balls I tied up earlier. They were Smurf blue. My heart dropped. In a moment, I panicked. I was like, have I just performed non-consensual castration on my partner? What if we want to have kids someday? Holy Jesus. So I tied them up, and luckily, um, the uh, blood returned to his, his nuts, and they went back to normal. But our relationship, sadly, did not. Over the next few months, he went back to being the dom I always knew. He didn't mention it, but then we got into a pattern where, like, every three or four months, he'd ask me to have a a session where he was a submissive, and I would put it off, put it off, put it off, until finally I gave in and did it. It didn't get easier for me. Days after, I would have images of him tied up naked, and it would really make it hard for me to put my collar on when I walked through the door and listen to his orders. I did get really good at one thing, though. I got good at ending them. So we'd have a session, and this is not a turn-on at all for me. I'm a submissive. Halfway through, my pussy would shut down like a blast door in Star Wars. But... So, so no, no cocks were landing in there tonight. So, had to follow through. So, instead, I would simply, and this worked like a charm every fucking time, I would take my panties off, sit on his face, spread my ass cheeks so his nose was really deep in there, and say, you don't get to breathe until you come. 45 seconds later, like clockwork. Survival instinct. So one day, <laughs> so one day about a year ago, 
he said, hey, Leslie, I'm thinking about ordering a chastity device. In fact, I already did. It's in the mail. And I, I was like, remember, 99% of the time, he was still my dominant. So I thought, oh, this is really hot. You want to lock my pussy up like I'm some medieval princess? That sounds wonderful. Um, unfortunately, when it came in the mail, I quickly realized that it wasn't for me. It was for him. And um, it was very imposing. I don't know if anyone here has ever seen a male chastity device, but it was, it, there was like a, a ring to put under the balls, a ring to put over the balls, and a clear cage so you can look at the sad, imprisoned cock while it's like <laughs> locked up in there, a space you can put like a disposable lock through. And I have seen, like there's a ton of like moving parts to hold it together. I've seen children's Lego sets with fewer parts than this device. So... I was like, okay, again, I want to please him. I want to be a good partner. So we try it out. I put it on his cock for a couple days. And then when it comes time to take it off, I tied him on his back, spread eagle on the bed. I took off the device. And as soon as it came off, he had this huge erection. And for some reason, the visual of seeing this erection, visibly seeing how much of a turn on this was for him and feeling how much of a turn off it was for me just disgusted me. And in what I cannot describe as a shining moment, I left the room, just left him there tied up, and went and played World of Warcraft for two hours. (laughs) When my gnome warlock had achieved level 67, I returned to the room and unlocked his cock. And uh, I I started playing with his cock, and... uh, he was breathless, and he thought the whole thing had been some crazy mindfuck. He was like, I can't believe you just left me for there for two hours. It was like you didn't even care. That was so hot. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> just like I didn't want your penis. So time went on, and... He kept asking for chastity again, and I was just like, it was too emotionally hard. I couldn't do it. We do the, the whole dominating sessions maybe once every three or four months. And he kept asking for chastity, and I just couldn't do it. One day, I was going on a trip I, uh, to San Diego to visit some family, and I was going to be gone for like four days, and he kept asking. I kept saying, no, 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 it's not hot. Why do you want that? It's so stupid that you want that. It's gross, whatever. So I was going to the airport, but the friend who had said she would give me a ride to the airport canceled on me at the last minute. So I was stranded, and Nick had to actually leave work on his lunch break in an emergency to give me a ride there. As he was hugging me goodbye at the terminal, I felt a lump in the front of his pants, and I was like, oh, you're really sad to see me go, aren't you? Thinking it was his hard cock, but when I reached down, I was dismayed. My heart dropped when all I felt was plastic. He needed this so badly that he had locked himself up because I wouldn't. I felt like such a piece of shit. This is something my partner really needed and I couldn't give it to him. And he had given me so much. He gives me so much every single day with the cage time and the orders and making me feel safe and loved. And as I flew down to San Diego, I resolved in my mind. I was like, I have to do this. We have to do this. I can make this happen. I'm going to do this. Luckily, a couple weeks later, Burning Man was going to happen. And this meant I would be out of town for eight days with no cell phone reception. 
the perfect opportunity. In fact, because of the no cell phone reception, I could even pretend it wasn't happening. So I sat him down on the bed, and I was like, okay, Nick, eight days. Can you do this? I would like to lock up your cock. It's going to be hot. Can you keep it locked up for eight whole days? He was like, um, yes, please. Do you want me to beg you? So, so I went to lock it up, and I realized I didn't know how to use the thing. So I was like, you do it. And so, so he did. It was a little hard because, okay, side note, the problem with male chastity devices is inherently the male putting it on is going to be turned on by it. So his cock gets hard, but it doesn't fit on a hard cock. So it's like an hour of back and forth trying to like lose your erection, then put it on really fast before your cock gets hard again. It's very difficult. So... So we, I put it on him, and I went to Burning Man and danced around in a sexy wampa and or Chewbacca costume, depending on the day, for <laughs> eight days, um, and came home. And when I came home, it was three in the morning, and I shouldn't have, because we both had work the next day early, but I showered the dirty hippie smell off me and crawled into bed next to him, damp and completely naked, and he was half asleep, and he started cuddling me. And he started kissing me, and he started touching me more gently than he had ever touched me before. He was sucking my nipples and gently fingering my clit and caressing my pussy, and he was making me feel like a princess, like the most beautiful person in the world. And I had never felt that way before. Don't get me wrong, I love being treated like a piece of garbage. That makes me wetter than anything in the world, but this was something completely different. (laughs) This was new. So I shouldn't have, but I I was like, I like this. So I left it on him an extra day and rushed home from work the next day uh, to find him at home. And we played for like four hours with him kissing me and giving me orgasm after orgasm with his mouth and my pussy, me whispering things like, oh yeah, you wish your cock was in there. So what had changed was before I was always thinking of it as something I was doing for him. I'm wired like that. I'm a submissive. I like to serve but it was something I didn't want to do for him. So I'd be reluctant and say, oh, I hate that. This is disgusting. I'm over this. But now it was very clear that he just wanted to pleasure me. There was nothing in this for him when he was giving me orgasms. He literally couldn't get any pleasure from it. And I had to stop thinking about serving him and just accept it. And it felt so good to accept it. I accepted it like 14 times in a row. (laughs) Finally, finally, I took the device off. And about half an hour later, he whispered in my ear, Princess, please, can I fuck you? I was like, yes. So he flipped me over, started fucking me from behind, and what he knows is my favorite position, as deep as he could get. And at that moment, I couldn't help but think, you know, it feels kind of good to be on top. (laughs) Thanks.
I love going home at the end of the night and thinking of all the things that I realized about myself listening to somebody else's story. And Leslie's story made me think about, you know, DNS, roles, mission, and changing it up and how hard that would be. Didn't she do an amazing job telling that story? So impressed. Our next storyteller is a disabled queer combat veteran who has been coming to body for a long time. And finally, he's pitched us a story. This is his very first time getting on stage to do this, y'all. Right? You gonna make him feel welcome? He's been working really hard. You need to show him your appreciation. Our next storyteller is Jeff Millard. Twenty-two veterans a day kill themselves. This morning I woke up at 7.30, literally this morning, to phone calls that one of my dear friends was found hanging. Uh, Jacob was a combat veteran, three tours in Afghanistan. He was a singer, played banjo, and he was the best storyteller I've ever heard tell stories. And so tonight I want to dedicate my story to Jacob and to all queer veterans who feel like we have to choose between being a veteran, being queer, and being anti-war. deployed to Iraq in 2004, and uh, when I deployed, I was already against the war very heavily, didn't know what to do about it, but I deployed anyways and kind of stuck my head in the sand and did my job. My political beliefs, the war fighting, didn't get in the way of the fact that for many months I was getting hornier and hornier and hornier, and I had no outlet for that. So one night I went in the kind of middle of the night, I went off to the, uh, to the internet cafe that we had and, and I got online. And this, this will probably date where at the time period I was cruising uh, because I went into the AOL chat rooms. <laughs> Have I fucked some of you out of the AOL chat rooms? Did that, did that happen? Fair enough, fair enough. I hope so, I hope so. So I put in the, you know, just a little bit of information because remember, this was during Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so I think just about every queer in Iraq at the time wanted to fuck something or someone, but was really afraid to make it happen. So I put in just enough information to find someone. It took a few nights, but I found someone on my base. And I was was so excited. There was someone actually here that I could fuck. And you know that I look like a real, like, big, macho, tough guy, which I am, fair enough. But, But I'm also a total bottom with men. I have no interest in fucking dudes. I have a huge interest in being fucked by them, okay? And I found a top. That's wonderful. I was very happy with that. We we made arrangements to find a place to have sex, and I knew of this shower area where not many people use, middle of the night we could go off, and and it's really difficult to find a place to fuck in Iraq, especially... (laughs) Especially on a U.S. base during Don't Ask, Don't Tell, when you're trying to get some cock. Uh, in fact, 
a lot of my friends used to jerk off in porta potties, and to this day, I have quite a few friends who get hard just walking past a porta potty. <laughs> yes, glad I wasn't one of them. But we decided to meet one night, and I go across base, and here I am, I'm wearing flip flops and my PT shorts, my PT shirt, and just in case you were wondering uh, what took away the tough guyness, I had a little basket with my loofah and my. <laughs> my body wash and my shampoo and my conditioner had very little hair but I still needed that conditioner because I had to smell good at the end right so I get into the trailers and I'm super nervous more nervous than I am right now and I get in no one's there alright what do I do alright I'll get in the shower first so I, I get into to a shower and the stalls aren't big right they're, they're very little shower stalls in these trailers and so okay I get in and say okay I'm nervous so let me I'll just start washing so I'll wash up and I put the shampoo in my hair and I hear the door open Ooh, my heart race and I, I stopped what I was doing hands mid <laughs> and comes in and the shower next to me turns on I'm like fuck oh great it's going to ruin the one chance I had to get laid in the months that I have been here because someone else decided to take a shower in the middle of the night. And a few seconds later, I hear, are you army guy 14094? <laughs> it was AOL. What the fuck do you want? I say, yes, yeah, yes, I am. And my nervous, probably 13-year-old schoolboy voice crackling. And I hear his shower turn off. So I try and rinse my hair out real fast. I didn't get a chance to because he was in the stall with me and I could feel him behind me. I mean, I could feel him behind me, <laughs> pressing in to the side of my ass. And he was already very hard and that made me quite happy as well. And I could hear him rip a condom, but I, I thought it was really hot not to turn around. I had no idea what this guy looked like and I was pretty okay with that. And so I just, arch back into him a little bit more and I could feel him pull away to put on the condom and the shower is still having hot water run on us and so which was really nice because by that time on our base in Iraq there was very rarely any hot water so it was very nice not to be sitting in a cold ass shower trying to get fucked so I could feel the water run down and I heard him spit but I didn't feel any spit but I felt him press into me and he started fucking me and I pressed back against him and I've been fucking men for longer than I've been fucking women. And so I was pretty good with it, but I almost came as soon as his cock touched my asshole. I was, had to give that, oh, oh, think about baseball, think about baseball. Don't do it, don't do it, back away. But he gets in and we start fucking. And this entire incident probably happened in about two minutes. But for me, it felt like 50 minutes of pure joy. But he gets in and just a few strokes in, bam, a mortar round hits. And we get knocked back against the wall. And there's this moment where we could follow SOP and go to the bomb shelter. But we'd have to stop fucking to do that. And so without a word between us, I push back and he pushes in. And there's this unspoken, well, fuck it. If we're going to die, we're going to die. Fuck it. So we do. We keep fucking. And he keeps going. And I'm pushing back. 
And I'm constantly having to like, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down. Don't come yet, don't come yet, don't come yet, calm down. I'm hoping he's doing the same thing, but just kind of keep my, and then bam, another mortar round hits. And we get knocked around again. This time we don't even fucking slow down. It's just, we're, we're gonna fuck. And if that round kills us, we're gonna die here. Fuck it, there's nothing we can do. You know, mom, she's gonna get that letter, sorry. <laughs> Son died with a dick in his ass, what are you gonna do? And we kept fucking, and then bam, another one. I mean, four or five rounds, it came in, bam. We just weren't gonna stop fucking. And then there was a point where I, there was no more stopping it, and this was, like I said, probably two minutes in, unfortunately. You know, whatever, it's a combat zone, things happen quickly. And I'm ready to just explode. And I can feel his left hand reaches up and grabs my shoulder, and his right grabs my hip, and he pulls me in really close even closer than that small shower allowed us at first. And I could feel him tense up, and I knew it was about to happen, so I'm like, okay, I can let go now. And we both come, and he comes as hard as I've ever had someone come in me. And I paint the wall of this fucking shower stall <laughs> like I was a fucking porn star. I wish I could pull that now. I wish I could pull that kind of load now. Nah, I was, it was everywhere. <laughs> He pulls out, takes a condom off, and he leaves. Never seen him again. Didn't see him really at the time. I rinsed off. I tried to rinse the wall off as much as possible. I finished my shower, and I went to walk back to my, my barracks, happy as can be. And I still have an issue with fireworks or explosions. And in those moments, like a few Saturdays ago, if you live in Oakland, you felt those homemade fireworks. I get in panic attacks. I get to the point where I can't get off my floor. I spend days not being able to get out of bed. But sometimes, every once in a while, in the midst of the darkness, in the midst of thinking about suicide, in the midst of the panic attacks, I remember getting fucked in the ass during a mortar attack. <laughs> and given that it, we're about to go into our third Iraq war. I decided to do this because I'm hoping maybe he might hear this. Because if we're about to start another war, I think I might need another good fucking. Thank you. Just move here. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are absolutely wonderful, and this is such a, just, I don't know, I'm just so thrilled with, with all the storytellers tonight. Our, our next storyteller, I first met her and fell in love with her immediately. She came to my apartment, my dingy little apartment in Queens one day, and told me a story about a lesbian furry fox hunt orgy. Yes. It became one of everyone's favorite stories that's ever been on the podcast, and I can't tell you how many emails I got from straight male friends of mine saying, dude, that, that story gave me a hard on. 
But she's absolutely lovely. She's an author and a sex educator. Please welcome to the stage, Alison Moon! Well, what a stage full of subs we got tonight. Look at this. So we're going to keep the trend going a little bit. Um, I'm at a sex party in Midtown, and I am cranky. Uh, fellow introverts in the audience will know, will may recognize the source of my malady. I was visiting New York City, visiting a bunch of friends, and we had spent all day at the gay nude beach in Brooklyn, it was beautiful, there were lots of us, and then I drove the rental car back into Manhattan during rush hour, and then the sex party was that night, and sometime between beach time and sex time, my thoughts went from like friends, pizza, Central Park, to genocide, murder, I'm the last woman left alive on the planet, yay! So I was really over people in general, um, and I end up at this sex party, which I know is like kind of ridiculous to say, but it was true. It's my truth. I often feel a lot like I relate to that old Twilight Zone episode, the guy who locks himself in the bank vault to read and survives the atom bomb, and he's the last person left alive. He says, finally, there's time. I'm the only one left. And I considered that like the feel-good story of my lifetime. It's like how some people relate to like Disney movies. I'm like, yes, dude, I know that feeling. Um, so I'm at the sex party, and I'm already kind of in a state. And the thing is, like, when I walk into the sex party space, it immediately is clear that this is actually a kink party space, which is fine. But it just means that, like, instead of mattresses and couches, there's like wooden blocks and St. Andrew's crosses and, and cages. And like, teach their own, but I'm a vanilla girl with vanilla tastes, and when I go to a sex party, I want to fuck and or be fucked. Flogging is between two adults in their own home. They should keep that to themselves. <laughs> so, I'm, like, I'm sitting on like the very uncomfortable futon thing and I'm all grumbly. Like, I feel like a Charlie Brown character where like, you can see the like, squiggle lines above my head. Like, I'm, I am the least happy person at the orgy. <laughs> and I'm sitting there totally over it. Not just over like, the sex party, but over like, the idea that people would want to spend time with other people for any reason whatsoever. <laughs> And so I see my partner, and he's starting to canoodle with some other folks, and I'm sitting surly on the futon, and I'm talking to some of my friends. And uh, this woman, we'll call her Fiona, comes over. And Fiona is a sadist. Uh, Fiona is a friend. And Fiona, because she's a good sadist, she can immediately tell that I'm cranky. And she says, hey, what's going on, sweetheart? And I said, I'm going to walk up uptown alone and get some pizza and a martini. And she's like, Allison, would you like to be pierced? And in my head, I'm like, no, no, that is the opposite of everything I ever want, ever. I do not want to be pierced. I'm a vanilla girl with vanilla tastes. Um, But I don't actually say that. And I'm fascinated when I don't actually say that and she sees that look on my face which a good sadist can recognize as oh oh so she just says I'm gonna go get my gear while you think about it a little 
So she walks off. And I, I'm hanging out with my friend Chad and Diane, and, I'm, and they're both into this. And I'm, so I'm like, so what do you like about piercing? What's, what's good about piercing? And Chad says, well, like, I love getting pierced. It's my favorite thing. Gosh, it's like the best natural high. The endorphin rush is unbeatable. Okay, point in the column for piercing. And then Diana says, well, it's like the most intense form of penetration. You know, it's like getting penetrated, but under your skin with metal. And I'm like, not quite getting you, but sure, point in the corner for piercing. I'm like, okay. I'm thinking about it. And then Fiona comes back. And now Fiona is not only a sadist, she's a professional sadist, literally. Um, But she is such a consummate, like, top. She's so good at being a dom. It's just part of her identity. It's intrinsic to her as a woman, which I find incredibly sexy. um, She's got this very, like, composed, regal air. And she, whenever I talk to her, and I've known her for years, but whenever I'm in the same space with her, I feel simultaneously like a puppy that just shat on the rug and like the duchess in her court. You know, it's like this combination. And she's, she's kind when it counts and cruel when it really counts. And I, we've been trying to figure out how to play for a long time because she's all the things that I find very sexy. She's older, she's knowledgeable, she's just, she's composed and regal in this way that I just get so turned on by. But she's a sadist and I'm a vanilla girl. It was not meant to be. Um, but there is one thing that I have in common with masochists. And that is, the more I like a woman, the more she scares me. And the more a woman scares me, the more I like her. (laughs) And Fiona, she scares me. (laughs) She scares me a lot. Um, So when I don't answer and she comes back with her kit, I just say, yeah, let's do this. And so she guides me to the examination table, one of the other few padded spaces in the whole area, and she lays me down. And Chad comes over with a bunny fur glove and like I undress and he starts stroking my chest and my belly and Fiona and I start negotiating and she asks me what I want, have I ever had this before and I explain like listen, this is a whole new thing for me so let's just start with baby steps, okay? And so she says okay. So we agree on six piercings on my chest, three in each breast and we'll add more as we go. So I'm like okay, sure. So I lay back, Chad teases my nipples a little bit, Fiona coos in my ear, and she lays out her gear. Her gear is a bottle of rubbing alcohol and cotton swabs, a thing of sharps, a sharp container, and a tackle box. The tackle box will become important later. So she starts uh, laying out the needles, and she says, okay, honey, I just want you to take a deep breath in and let it out. And so I take a deep breath in, and as I let it out, I feel the first needle go in right here. And it feels like a bee sting. It's hot and sharp and intense, and immediately my body goes into danger, danger, Will Robinson mode. Something bad is happening to you. And I just kind of have this moment like, okay, okay, this is fine. We're safe, we're safe. But like, I've done needle play in the form of tattoos before. Like, I like the feeling of the damage that a tattoo gun gives me because I come out with a tattoo on the other side, which I like. The whole idea of having this damage done to my body with no discernible purpose is starting to kind of talk to my lizard brain and be like, this is stupid. 
why are you doing this? Go back uptown and get your pizza and martini. But I am on the examination table, and I have a needle in my breast, and we're just going to keep on keeping on. So she puts another needle right below that one. And then she says, you know, I know what I'd like to do. How would you feel about having some charms installed on your chest? And now at this point, I am so endorphined out. I'm like, I'm like, I have two needles in my breast and a sadist is leaning over me. I'm not going to say no. I don't even know what the word no means anymore. I'm just kind of this like, and so she says, okay. And so she, she reaches for the tackle box and from the tackle box, she pulls a line of fishing line, some surgical scissors and a box of charms. Uh, the charms are like farm animals and little plastic dancers and like those cheap jewels. Stuff that you get from like the Oriental Trading Company, right? And she's kind of shuffling through like she's a, like, like a lady at a beating class. And she's like, oh, she's like, I'm feeling piglets. How do piglets sound to you? And I'm just like, and she's like, great, piglets, piglets it is. Okay, great. So she pierces me four more times. I have this nice little inverted V on my chest. And then she starts to run the filament through the holes. She runs the fishing line through the holes, and then she takes a fresh needle, and she's, like, drilling holes in these little plastic piglets with this needle, and then she threads the filament through the piglets, and then she ties them off. And each time she ties it, I feel the tug inside my flesh. And it is a singularly intense, unique, and sickening feeling, having this kind of writhing through my skin. And so I'm lying there just breathing through it, and Chad comes over and rubs my body up and down with the bunny fur, and I'm like, Chad, just, you can stay, right? Just stay here for a little while. So uh, Chad runs the, the bunny fur up and down, and Fiona's stroking my chest and complimenting me about my beautiful breasts and how gorgeous it looks with these darling little piglets dangling from them. And then she asks me if I'd like to sit up. And I, at this point, I have not looked at all. And so I'm like, yes, yes, I shall sit up. I shall be extra awesome sub. Okay. And so I sit up. And she says, you know, like, okay, so how you feeling? Like, stroking my shoulders. Like, would you like to maybe wander on the party with the, with the little danglies? Show off your little piglets? <laughs> and I look down. And I look up and I think, I think I'm done. <laughs> And she says, okay, no problem, no problem. So she grabs the scissors and she snips the fishing line and she pulls it out. And each time I just feel that tug on my skin as she pulls out these, these fishing lines. And then she says, okay, like, just breathe, breathe. And I look down and I see little rubies of blood at each wound. Here and then here and then here. And then here and then here except for the second one on my right breast. That one starts out as a ruby, and then it floods. And now I have blood cascading in a river down my breast and splattering at my bare thigh, bright red against my white skin under the blue lights at this sex party. And I look at her, and she says she's not even phased. And she says, oh, looks like I nicked a vein. Um, okay, so, um, so I can patch you up and you'll be good to go, or 
I can do this thing where I take some rubbing alcohol and I spritz it over your chest and it will take all of the wounds and make them look just like that one running down your breast in these beautiful red cascades of blood. Would you like that? And I do what any Tennessee Williams heroine would do in that circumstance, and I swoon. I swoon for the first and only time in my life, but I swoon. And I kind of go back like this, and Chad is there, and he catches me. And Fiona says, okay, I think that answers my question. (laughs) And so she takes a cotton ball, and she dabs me, and she gives me a little Band-Aid, and she kind of cleans me off, and then she practices good aftercare. The the rabbit fur glove comes back out, and we're all making Alice and feel safe again. And and then I'm like, okay. So I I, I put on my clothes, and I, I thank her for her service, and I kind of like wobble out to the midtown sidewalk and I, I reach for my marijuana and I have a hit and then my partner comes wandering downstairs and my partner's like, hey, how was that? I'm like, it was a really interesting thing I never want to do again ever. <laughs> ever. Ever, ever, ever. And he says, okay, cool. What do you want to do now? And I'm like, I want to go back to your apartment and I want to fuck. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> storyteller of the night. Uh, We did uh, Risk uh, live in San Francisco, uh, maybe it was last year, but it was one of our most popular episodes ever, and she was just so wonderful on it. And she got me stoned afterwards, and then I attended an orgy at Allison Moon's house. It all went so much better because Caitlin Gill got me stoned! Please welcome the stage, Caitlin Gill! The first time I got slapped in the face during sex, I wanted to not like it so bad. That's not what happened, everybody. I really liked it. I don't think it's any surprise that it's been a bunch of subs up here tonight. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but I think subs are people who control a lot of aspects of their lives. Perhaps compulsively. They feel a need to control their environment. They feel fear if they are not in control. How sexy is it to give up that control? It's beautiful. It's a terrific thing, right? It's a sub that would come up here and perform. The Dobbs are at home watching Firefly again, waiting. (laughs) Waiting for a sub to get home and crawl into their cage. (laughs) 
I'm in my 30s now, and when I was in my early 20s, I had a few lovers that really helped me experience this side of myself. A few lovers that drew this out of me. I found this submissive side that I didn't even know existed, that I didn't even have in my fantasies. I didn't even allow it as an option, but they gave it to me. I think submissives, you know if you're a submissive uh, when you get your first blowjob. Because I had given lots of blowjobs. And they were fun, right? You do the thing, and you sometimes your hands and your mouth, and you do... But the men that I was with treated a blowjob like a thing you get. They just lay back, and they just flop it out. Especially big dick men. Big dick men are lazy. They just lay back and think that this hard thing's going to do all the work, and you do all the work. You go down, you do the blowjob. As soon as you're with a dominant partner, you learn that a blowjob is something someone gives you. Right? Drops you to your knees. When it first happened to me, I was told to put my hands by my side and not lift them again. And I didn't. And then I felt that push to the back of my throat. I barfed everywhere. I apologized to no one. It's beautiful. I had a lot of fun with these guys. They weren't relationships. They were friends with incredible benefits. I really enjoyed it. We really enjoyed each other. And I continued exploring along this vein until everything changed. And everything changed when I fell in love. I know, right? (laughs) And I fell in love in the cheesiest way possible. It was absolutely love at first sight for both of us. I was not yet a comedic performer, but I was interested in the comedic arts, and I was walking by a bar in my neighborhood, and I stopped short in my tracks when I saw a man standing outside of this bar that I'd walked by a thousand times, but I'd never walk by it the same way again. This beautiful man was standing there, and I knew he was talking to me, but I couldn't hear what he was saying because I had my North Face hood up and my earbuds in, not dressed for the occasion. Uh, But I stopped. I wanted to know what he was going to say. I pulled off my hood. I put on my earbuds, and he said, there's a comedy show upstairs if you want to come inside. And I thought, did you say come inside? So I did, I went to that comedy show and I watched him perform and he was great. And he walked back off stage and he made this beeline to me because we had both felt it when we saw each other. It was that we knew we were going to be important to each other the moment we looked into one another's eyes. And he stopped right by my table and he talked to me for a minute. We're chatting. And then he slides over his notebook and he used one of those memo books you get at Walgreens, right? Like the composition book with the black and white cover, you know? And he's like, can I have your email? I gave him my phone number, y'all. <laughs> and we started hanging out, and we were, we, we were in love right away. It was so magical and so powerful. And we explored this connection. We dated a few times, and then, of course, we did it. <laughs> we got down a bit, and he was physically gorgeous. Like, I know I'm a nine if you're into me. <laughs> that it's a curve and I fall in a certain place in it. He's just objectively gorgeous. Like he could walk, this is his line, he could walk into the Los Angeles Lakers and just disappear. Like you'd have no idea which one he was. He's just a big, gorgeous, athletic, beautiful man and we had this sex 
We got down and we had this sex. It was just like, ugh. It was just like passionately adequate. Ugh. Ugh. It was like perfectly okay, I guess. Yeah. Congressed sexually more often, I realized that this was a person who had an idea of what was good and what was bad. And good things were sexy and you did those, and bad things you just didn't do in the bedroom. Those were bad. They were compartmentalized to him. And I didn't know what that was about, but I could tell it was a deeper issue than just sex. And as we grew closer and he was able to share more with me, I learned a lot more about him. I learned about why violence was never going to enter his bedroom. Because let's be clear, like, subs and doms can use a lot of language, but what we do is inherently violent. You know, there's violence and aggression in it. It's hard to take out that intent. And when I learned about his childhood and the violence that he witnessed and experienced... I knew that he would never be able to translate that into something sexual. And that was totally okay with me. That is a boundary that is perfectly fine for anyone to establish, and it doesn't mean that you can't have hot sex. The problem is the hot sex he was having wasn't with me. I learned that in this relationship, I had moved from being somebody's whore with all my buddies to someone's Madonna. And that is very different. Many sufferers of trauma are in this room tonight and they enjoy wild kinky sex. It's part of how they heal. But this was a man who was not capable of doing that. That's not how he was going to heal from his trauma. Part of how he coped was to compartmentalize everything. And he had compartmentalized me into wife and potential mother. That's what he would talk about. He would talk about our future. He would talk about our weddings and our kids. He would get really drunk and talk about our wedding and our kids. With him, we were basically always a six-pack away from already being wed. Like, that's how that relationship felt. And I knew that something was different, that at the core, this relationship was flawed. And it was because with the partners that I'd had, where we were just buddies, having wild, free, aggressive, powerful, crazy sex... There was this feeling I couldn't put my finger on and I didn't have a name for it yet. And I knew that it was missing in my relationship with my ex. Of course, uh, I think we knew already that this is not a current relationship. I'm dating a woman now. All my blowjob skills are lost. I'm basically an artist that refuses to paint, everyone. But I knew that something was missing in this relationship, and I knew if I stayed in it, I would remain his Madonna. I would be a Silicon Valley wife with kids in a house that I hated and so many resentments that I would die underneath them, and I knew that wasn't right for me. But I also know that I'm still kind of a sub, and I don't leave situations until I'm told to. And nothing in myself was telling me to leave until it had just sort of disintegrated around us. There was still so much love and there was still this bond and we were still perfect for one another in the sense that my mommy issues matched his daddy issues like perfectly. (laughs) But the push and pull was such that me, I was drawn to him. He made me codependent and that dependency pulled him away from me. And it was never meant to stay this way. We were supposed to love one another, take care of one another, and then get out before any damage was done. 
And neither one of us were able to really pull the ripcord fast enough. He didn't know how to, I didn't know how to, and it didn't end until one night we were at that same bar. He got drunk enough to forget I was there, and I watched him ask another girl for her number. He let her write it in his composition book. I let it end. I let it end around me. I healed a little bit. This is somebody I still love, but I know we're not supposed to be together. And I, I did the work so that I could enter back into singlehood, like, ready to go, you know? <laughs> like, I didn't want to hurt anybody on the rebound. Like, I wanted to have fun again. So I did a little work on myself, and I came back out on the scene, and I came out swinging. <laughs> Which in our scene can mean so many things. Um, <laughs> But specifically, I got back in touch with some of the guys who were very happy to hear about my recent breakup. Uh, they were some of the old familiar friends, and we got back to some of our old familiar tricks. <laughs> doing it. It's with one of my favorite partners, the one that gave me some of my fondest memories, and I had nine inches of his ten and a half inches just shoved in the parts of my sinuses. <laughs> that doctors would need a robot picture, to, like a camera on a tube to take a picture of. Found his way up on in. And I, I felt him lean over toward the bed and I saw him pull his belt out from his pants. And he wrapped his belt around my neck and he tightened it and I liked that. It turns out I focus a little bit better when I can't breathe. <laughs> Then he took that belt off my neck and he folded it over once in his hand and he slapped me across the legs and butt with it. The first time I got hit with a leather belt, I wanted to like it so bad. I didn't like it, everybody. I didn't like it at all. <laughs> and it broke the mood abruptly. And I had one of those epiphany moments where it's like, I know I'm having thoughts about this that I won't process until we're done fucking, but I'm going to think about this a lot. <laughs> and we didn't stop fucking. He hit me one more time, and then I touched his hand with the belt in it, and I pushed it away, and I said, you know what? I like just your hands. And he said, okay, cool, put the belt down and just started slapping me with his hands. And I thought, I like this. I like this. And when I woke up the next morning and I was thinking about that moment, that epiphany, and trying to figure out what it was that I felt in that moment that was so good, because something had just happened to me that crossed a boundary that I didn't know existed, but it crossed it. And that should feel hard. That should be challenging. And it was exactly the opposite. I felt warm. I felt love. And I didn't know what that meant. And finally, I had a word for what was present in these relationships, however casual, and what was not present in the relationship that I had tried to make work for years. And that word is trust. I was so thankful that my partner hit me. Not because he stopped when I asked him to. That's fucking basic human rights. I 
was thankful to him because he trusted me to hit me. That's such a huge risk for him. That's such a limb to go out on. And he did it. He did it for me. And he let me say that I didn't want it. He let me say that it wasn't for me. And he just kept on fucking. That's beautiful, everybody. If there's anyone super vanilla out here tonight, and I believe that you are, you don't... You don't have to get hit with a leather belt. You don't have to have a mask on and bend over to sniff shoes. You can be just like me. You can know that you will never climb into a cage after work. You don't treat you just, that's not your, like, I'm not, I can't do what Leslie could do. You will know that if a mortar hits while you're fucking, you're going to run away. totally okay. If you're not here to explore yourself sexually, I encourage you to model your relationship after a kinky relationship in no other way other than trust. If you can't fully trust who you are with, why are you with them at all? And trust can mean lots of things. I don't need fidelity. I just need honesty. And that is something that's at the core of any kinky relationship. You need to know that the person who's going to break into your apartment is the one that you actually expected to break into your apartment. That's how this is done. I wanted to leave you with one thought, everybody, because I feel like that kind of consent is just magical and the kind of heights of ecstasy you can reach with kinkiness are just incredible, but you should also have the right to pull the ripcord whenever you want. Use your safety word, squirm away, say it's just not for you, that's totally okay. With everything except for water sports. If you agree to let someone pee on you, They get to pee on you until they are done. (laughs) Afterwards, you just grab a towel, wipe off your face. That wasn't for me, babe, but thanks for trying. (laughs) Urination, man. That's one ride. Once you get on... You don't get off until it's over. Thanks very much, everybody. Good night.
for this week folks this is rachel lark behind me now rachel actually uh, sung this song at the beginning of that uh, performance but we uh, we flipped it round but you can find her album lark after dark at rachellark.bandcamp.com now don't forget folks you can also see the risk show that we did at la podfest on september 28th you can see it streaming on the web for the next few weeks if you just go to lapodfest.com slash live and use the coupon code R-I-S-K. You'll save $5, Risk will get $7 for every pass sold, and you'll get to watch all the other podcasts that were there at the festival. A lot of amazing stuff. Now, don't forget also that we have Max Fun Week coming up. Max Fun Week is, um, well, it's not really a fundraiser. It's really just maximum fun making a lot of fun happen. Uh, There's going to be Q&As, behind-the-scenes tours, giveaways, and more. So be sure to check out all of your favorite Max Fun shows between October 15th and the 21st and find everything you want at MaximumFun.org. Also, don't forget, we're going to Pornotopia in Albuquerque, New Mexico, but we're trying to help them raise funds to bring risk there on November 13th for a show and workshop. Fuck! Well, you get the idea. A show and workshops. So go to Indiegogo.com and look up Support Pornotopia 2014. Give to the cause there. And, of course, you know, come to see us in Albuquerque uh, once we get there. Don't forget that we teach storytelling, too, at thestorystudio.org. We have our online class that you can take in your own time. That's storytelling for business. Of course, we do corporate workshops, but we do one-on-one training over Skype as well. And our workshops in person in New York and Los Angeles. That's all at thestorystudio.org. Now, we're not totally up to speed yet, folks. I don't know if you heard, but we had a little bit of a crisis. I had bed bugs. I had to flee my apartment. And now I'm in a new place, but I have to build a whole new sound booth and probably get myself an iPad for recording the show. Uh, So we are kind of in need. If you want to donate, go to MaximumFun.org slash donate and become a member or make a one-time donation. You are currently listening to me on my bed with a tent made over me out of comforters. <laughs> Let's try to change that, folks. Go to MaximumFun.org slash donate if you can. Thanks so much. All right, folks, today's the day. Take a risk. <laughs> <laughs>